You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning. How are we doing? Doing good. Great. How many many cups of coffee do you have by this point in the morning, JT? Are you two cups in? I'm on number two right now. I just started number two, but what like literally right when you're asking me this question, I was reading a text message. Uh, our, our new student minister texted me and says, Hey, I'm heading over to red silo. Do you want some more coffee? And I'm absolutely saying yes. So I'll be, I'll be three in by the end of this episode. Okay. Well, that's good. And now, and for the listeners at home who have been paying attention to our social media, uh, is your coffee that you're drinking right now, does it happen to have your face wrapped around the outside of it in a sort of coffee sleeve? The listeners want to know. Do you use coffee sleeves with your face on them? I just wish just the listeners could. I wish the listeners could see his facial expression right now because it's making me so happy. He. This is certainly. He's. He's definitely <laughs> deadpanning this joke right now. Um, but I've got to tell you, uh, I like to imagine that every time you pour yourself a cup of coffee you're drinking it out of a coffee container that has your face on it. Well, what's interesting is that doesn't happen, but every time I imagine you pouring yourself a cup of coffee, <laughs> I imagine my face being on your cup of coffee. <laughs> every time I imagine JT pouring himself a cup of coffee, I secretly hope a little will spill on him yeah, yes. and burn him. He has been, just so our listeners can know that before we actually begin to successfully record an episode, he trolls Kyle so hard every single time. I think, the I, I, do it. I think the listeners have a very good perspective about how I'm treated by JT. I think they, I think they have fully wrapped their head around the nature of our relationship. Uh, well, I mean, our producer, Brad, you know, when we were recording this regularly at the village, uh, would do it every episode for you. And I just figured if we're talking about creation narratives, every time we, we create a new podcast, we need to have the same ritual, the same rhythm. And so since he's not here today, I'm just, just trying to take over Brad's role. Yeah, well, um, some things are better left unsaid. Uh, and, uh, well, we, you know, listen, th- these episodes are not always just JT trying to throw us off the rails from the beginning. Sometimes we genuinely get down to talking about brass tacks. But I was I was telling JT and Jen a story before we jumped on, and I think it's relevant for what we're talking about today. Uh, maybe you've heard it before, but there's this story that's often told when you're talking about creation narratives about a dad explaining the creation of the world to his son. And the son asked the dad, how does the earth stay standing? How does it stay standing up in the air? And the dad says, well, you know, the earth sits on the shoulders of an elephant. And the son goes, well, what is the elephant standing on? And the elephant, and the dad says, well, uh, the elephant's standing on the shoulders of a whale. And uh, the son goes, okay. And he kind of sits there for a moment and goes, well, what's the well sitting on? And he said, it's the shoulders of a bear. And he goes, it's the shoulders of a giraffe. And he keeps going. And the son, you know, has a little child would just keep asking, but what, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And eventually the son goes, well, dad, what are they all standing on? And he goes, son, at the bottom is a giant turtle and it's turtles all the way down to the bottom. And just this, you guys did not think that was funny. You didn't think it was funny when I told it before. I know. I was like, am I supposed to have a laugh track or do I have to laugh at the end of this? (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're going to have to have Brad play the wah, wah track because I think that story is hilarious, but it clearly is not playing well with this audience. But Turtles all the way down. it, It definitely raises a question, which is... What Why is, turtles? 
<laughs> or w- w- why is that, telling this story again? And, and, that's the, and that's the question that we will answer today. Why turtles? Um, but you know, my son Thomas, he's five right now, and he's in this phase of thinking whatever he says is funny. Mm-hmm. So he'll just walk up. We were having dinner last night with some friends, and he walks up and he just says, "Do you guys want to hear a joke?" <laughs> and we're like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Cars on the road." <laughs> And he just like does this fake laugh. That's hilarious. But he'll do it like 20 times a day. And this is what you're reminding me of right now. I have bad news for you. Thomas was five, but he's 45 now after (laughs) Kyle told his story. We've all aged significantly. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, getting to the point of the show today and the reason for the story, which is we're going to ask the question, what's happening before the beginning? What happens before the beginning? So if Genesis 1-1 starts with in the beginning... What was happening before the beginning? Mm. We have to kind of pause there and ask this question. What was happening before the beginning? And when we're doing this kind of work, we have to acknowledge that we're going to be using other parts of Scripture to talk about what's happening before the beginning. Is that fair to say, JT? Like There are other aspects of Scripture that give us an account of what's happening and then we're going to be standing on the foundation of Trinitarian theology mm-hmm. to do some of this work as well, to talk about, okay, what was going on and who was there? And yeah. so let's just start with that. Who or what existed before the beginning? Do you Wait. want to start further back? Is there a place to start further back than that? No, but before JT launches into his Here happy place, I'm so excited. I am. Um, I do think it's important for us to recognize that by asking that question, we're breaking our own rule just a little bit, but also maybe not, because we're asking a question that Genesis is not asking when we ask that question. Genesis is not asking or answering that question for us. But we talked about in the previous episode how there are these concentric circles. And so this would be an example of where we're going to an outer concentric circle to look back toward mm-hmm. the center. So um, just bearing in mind, we, we asked what questions is Genesis asking and answering, and we're going to get into that quite a bit. And the question that Kyle just posed is actually not being asked by Genesis, but it is asked and answered elsewhere. Yeah. I think you're right, Jen. Okay. But hang on. Like, if, Turtle. If, if, Turtle. You the, if you have the first line, in the beginning, God, you, you would have to have to figure out, okay, so where did he come from? Right. And who is he? He has to be before the beginning. Right. Now, right. it might not give us an answer in Genesis, right. yeah. but I would say the question is asked in Genesis. Mm, Okay, I would say that it's not a question of primary concern, as we will see with other questions. But I'm not, I am not diminishing... Jen says that Genesis is not asking the question who God is or why it's important. <laughs> okay. No, what I, no, my point is just that um, this is a really important question, but it's not, Genesis is not primarily concerned with answering it. But I think that it is important for us to answer it as we launch into Genesis. Right. And then, and, and, and to prove your point, when most people start reading Genesis, they, they don't stop to go, what was happening before the beginning? Right. That's Jen and she's right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Most, the, the, but it's the, a good question to ask. The book start, the Genesis starts real-time action with the beginning. I mean, so you're already in the flow of it. So this is kind of stepping back and saying, okay, well, what was happening before that actually started? So who, who was there? I mean, was there a bunch of stuff going on there? Were there a bunch of people there? Was there a big, you know, meeting Turtle. to talk about it? Were there turtles all the way down? Who was yeah. there? 
Yeah. So my, my, the way I understand it, I think the way the Bible describes it is there was nothing. Everything is dark, formless, void. Try to imagine if you can nothingness, like nothing, 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 nothing other than God. God is the only thing that there is. God is the only thing that is a being that is in existence and he is entirely uncreated. I actually had somebody ask me a question the other day uh, here at the church I pastor now. And they said, JT, I'm so glad you're here. I've wrestled. This is a, this is a kind of an older saint. He's been walking with the Lord for 40, 50 years. And he said to me, he said, Hey, JT, I've had this intellectual question for the entirety of my walk with the Lord. Where did God come from? And he's asking the question, like, who made God? When did God come into being? And that's, I think, a very common question. And the Christian response to this is God didn't come from anything. God didn't start anywhere. He is the thing that is probably most distinct about God. And this is what we learned last year in the Apostles' Creed, is that he is the maker. He is the, un, he is the one who is unmade. He is uncreated, exists entirely, distinctly in and of himself in Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the first thing we want to say before we even get into Trinitarianism, if you want to go down that path, is before anything, God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's and that's pivotal because specifically when we're talking about who God is in reference to these first chapters of Genesis, we, we often use the language of creator-creature distinction, right? Exactly. And that, that might be one of the most important distinctions that the Bible makes and that we have in theology is that God is entirely uh, in and of himself. Yeah, absolutely. That um, he is qualitatively different than anything else. He is utterly unique. That's right. So one of the ways when I teach this that I get people to sort of have this hit home is I say, right, you're going to make a chart. And on one side, you're going to label the first column um, things that are uncreated. And then on the other side, you're going to label it things that are created. And Mm -hmm. then... On the left-hand side, things that are uncreated, what are you going to write? We're going to write God. And then on the right-hand side, what are you going to write? Everything else. Everything. Like there's there's nothing that was not, that did not, um, that does not have God as its origin. Yeah. Yeah. So we start there with talking about, okay, God is creator. And Genesis is clearly displaying this, that God is creator. Everything else is created. But who is this God? JT, you mentioned it kind of when you were talking about it, that this God is Trinity, right? God Mm -hmm. is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so are we talking about three different gods up there all discussing with one another? Are we in collaborating with one another? Are we talking about one God who has three different roles? Who are we talking about when we're talking about this God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yeah, so I think there's just clues that are given to us uh, in Genesis. Some people like to go to Genesis 1, 26, where the text says, let us, which shows some kind of a divine plurality. There's lots of ways to, to interpret that, but it's actually probably better for us, honestly, just to go to the New Testament. Charles Spurgeon has this analogy where he talks about um, God has always been Trinity, but it's kind of like walking into a room where there's furniture everywhere. And in the Old Testament, the lights are off. In the New Testament, you're turning the lights on. None of the furniture was placed there during the New Testament. It was was there the whole time, but you can now see it better. So canonically, it's actually probably better for us to to move our way backwards. If God is, if there's only one God and he is Trinity, and that's what we see clearly in the New Testament and in the church's confessions, then that must be the same God who existed before all of creation. And so 
the way that we understand Trinitarian relations in the New Testament is that there are three persons and one God. Our definition for Trinitarianism is that God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons, each of whom are fully God, yet there's only one God. So breaking yeah. that definition. JT, can I pause you for a second? Yep. Could you could you go back and say our definition of the Trinity is, and yep. just kind of repeat that real slowly? Yes. Okay. So our definition of the Trinity is God eternally exists. So pausing there, that he that's what we've just been talking about. He is eternal. He has not come into being. He is the creator and maker of all things. So so always been, always will be. That's right. Okay. And, and never will, never came into existence, never has ceased existing, never will cease to exist. So, let, let, so let's stop there. Uh, so sometimes we'll say that means that God is ah say. That's yeah? right. Yep. Self, self-existent, self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I actually want to come back to this in a second because okay. I've got a new hobby horse that you guys haven't heard about yet. But oh, yeah, that we'll, sounds we'll good. That Something to look forward to. That's We're going right. to call them hobby turtles from now on though. Oh, that's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> So God eternally exists as one essence. This is this is that God is not somehow intermingled or commingled with his creation, but he is this one God who is joyful and happy and glorious in and of himself. Yet this one God who is one essence eternally exists as three distinct persons or the term that the creeds have used is hypostases, that they are they are distinct in their personhood, but not distinct in essence. So everything that is true of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in terms of their deity is true equally of all of them. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. So there's nothing that makes the Son subordinate or less God-like than the Father. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. Yet there's only one God. So we don't want to think of the three persons as three distinct gods. So when we're thinking about Genesis 1, 1, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What the Christian hears is, in the beginning, the Trinity created the heavens and the earth. That God the Father creates all things through God the Son, Colossians chapter 1, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah, and 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 we we even get some glimpses of this just right there in those first two verses, right? I mean, you 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 get a picture of the cooperative work, the, the That's right. and and it's important. We've talked a lot about this on the show before, but this this idea, this doctrine of the three persons of the Godhead uh, uh, doing. Uh, working together in the act of creation or working as one in the act of creation is the doctrine of inseparable operations, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not as if God, the father was, uh, he's the one who created. And then, you know, X amount of years later, God, the son shows up to redeem the world. And then X amount of years later, God, the Holy spirit shows up to be the presence of God among his people. No, any one act is an act of all, right? That's right. So sometimes you'll hear people well-intentioned say, well, the Old Testament is about God the Father. The Gospels are about God the Son. And then after Jesus ascends, this is this is really where the Spirit is working. But the reality is, is there's no act uh, that God performs that isn't initiated by God the Father, completed through God the Son, and brought to its fulfillment through and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's good. So outside of God— Can I do my hobby horse now? Turtle. Sure. One second, though, just so that we can land the listener. God. Land the listener? 
so we can land the plane gotcha. for the listener. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> How many cups of coffee did you say you had? Because yeah. I think I'm going to need a couple more. more. Third here in a minute. Um, so uh, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, the Godhead, mm-hmm. God created everything that is before he did this. There was nothing. Nothing. But him. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear on what nothing was there. So it, there was no time. And there was no matter because in the beginning is a time stamp. It's saying in the, at the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. So God existed outside of time and was immaterial. Fair? Good? Yep. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. So that's easy to conceive of, right? So if you really, it's not even proper to say what happened before the beginning because that implies that there was time before the beginning, right. but it's, it's fine. We're going to say it. Yeah, because it's it's really impossible for us, not impossible, but it's incredibly tricky for us to conceive of eternality. Yeah. Uh, because it's it, it is it is literally a concept that if we can understand uh, conceptually, we there's just nothing in our surface. experience. Yeah, there's no. nothing in our experience we can point to that shows us that. Well, um, and the challenge we're facing right now proves the point, doesn't it? Is right. that since we are creatures bound by time, mm-hmm. we can't even find ways to speak of it because mm-hmm. we are we are the created ones. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So I do want to talk about, I, don't, I hope I'm not getting ahead of you guys, but um, I do want to talk about some of the practical implications of God being uncreated, that all things have come from him. Um, because I do think that there is a, one of the, one of the predominant sort of sentimental thoughts about the creation narrative is that God created not just everything, but specifically people because he was lonely. So we think about, you know, no matter, no time, and we think, oh, that would be super boring and lonely um, because we're projecting something onto God that is true of us. But God is not like us. And so obviously JT has mentioned before that just the the nature of God being three in one means that he certainly was not lonely. You can't accuse him of loneliness or lack of community, that he has eternally had community. But I think it's also important for us to recognize that if he created all things, if all things came from him, and if there was a time, um, again, I'm, I'm using the only language I have, if there was a time when nothing existed, then nothing that exists is needful to God. So he does not need his creation. And, and that means that the loneliness theory of creation, that God was, was sitting moping and sad and he created humans to meet a, 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 an emotional need, uh, it just can't fly. Yeah. This is part of my hobby horse, Jen. This oh, is awesome. I'm so hobby happy. turtle. Hobby Make turtle. the turtle happen. Part of my hobby turtle. <laughs> well, this is, you're describing probably 90%. I mean, I don't even need to say much more because I'm in full agreement with you. But a lot of evangelicals have unknowingly, perhaps unintentionally, and maybe even well-intentionally adopted a view of God that is sometimes called relational theism. Hmm. It's this idea that God exists in order to be in relationship with us, and that whether he needs something from us, wants us, desires us, and is somehow unsatisfied or not fully God until he is in relationship with us. And there's reasons for this. It's because we we read the story. We read stories in the Bible that demonstrate a God who is relational, who mm-hmm. wants to interact with His people. But we have to again begin knowing that there was boundless time 
on, you know, again, we've said there was no time and he was entirely satisfied in mm-hmm. himself, mm-hmm. is entirely satisfied. In Kyle already mentioned the doctrine of aseity. That's a Latin term to say in himself, he is completely God. Uh, you know, need, he, he doesn't need, mm-hmm. he doesn't need you. He doesn't even, this, this might sound, you know, almost like heretical. He doesn't need our worship. Mm-hmm. He is worthy of it. But the son has been eternally worshiping the father. The father has been eternally worshiping the son and the spirit. So there's, there's nothing in God that needs to be fulfilled is really what we're saying. Absolutely. Well, well, and we talked about, uh, you know, in our first episode about these worldview questions that people ask, that all generations ask. So we're, we're looking at a text that's roughly 3,500 years old. Um, but but the Israelites would be asking and wanting answers to the same questions that we are today. And the typical first question that, that we ask is, um, who am I? And so significantly when Genesis opens, that's not the first statement it makes. The first statement it makes is, who is God? Yeah. And and so I do think that, that the, the, the loneliness theory of creation is asking the wrong question first. It's starting with my concerns uh, and what the Bible is going to do starting in the first verse and all the way to the end is begin with orienting us toward uh, the vertical saying, first look at God. You will have no hope of asking and answering who am I until you first asked and dealt with who is God. That, and it, it actually, um, and Mike Reeves talks a little bit about this in the, a book we've recommended over and over and over again, Delighting in the Trinity. Um, it talks about how pivotal this is for understanding the doctrine of creation, that God's Trinitarian relationships and specifically that God is ase, self-existent, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and didn't create out of need. This is a fundamental distinctive of the Christian origin story that God uh, that God did not create humanity or the world to fulfill some sort of need and other ancient Near Eastern narratives are largely built out of either warfare divine warfare to gods um, in an ancient Near Eastern story waging war and then creation being the aftermath of their divine warfare mm-hmm or of God's creating humans for the purpose of meeting their needs and serving them, right? Of like meeting some unfulfilled need in the God mm-hmm. or, or, or the false God. Um, but the Christian story is flying in the face of that, saying that we emerge out of the overflow of God's delighting mm-hmm. love in himself. And because of that, we emerge out of and are created from God's delighting love, his initiating delighting love. So I think a lot of times when people appeal to the more need or relational theism, they do so in a way that really they want to have a view that puts them in a very treasured position in relationship to God. And yet the need-based approach that God needed us really immediately puts us in the position of a servant debtor as opposed to a beloved son, daughter, right? And I think that's where, that's where we have to start. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today.
We live in a possession and money obsessed culture. But what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Well, I, this might get us down another road. So if I ask the question, you're like, nope, don't want to go there yet. That's fine. I want, I want this question to be heard charitably. I'm not trying to throw stones at anybody, but Kyle, you and I have had a conversation here because all, all I want to do is not throw stones, but I want, I'm trying to show people where this might be lurking and they're not even thinking about it. Yeah. Is, is that fair? Yeah. So, and again, I, I love worship leaders. I just, I just hired one here. We're, we're so thankful for because worship is theological. The theology is worshipful. There is some popular evangelical songs that kind of operate on this idea of the loneliness of God. Tons again, of hear me, the, hear me the right way. I'm not trying to be the theology guy bashing. I'm just trying to say, Hey, who, what we sing about God matters. And so there's a song that has a lyric and I really, there's parts of the song that I love. Please. I'm just trying to like give every caveat, not throwing stones. It says you did not want heaven without us. Right. Yeah. Kyle, Kyle, you and I have had lots of conversations with some, some worship leaders and and you, you actually said something to me once that was really insightful because some of the worship leaders were saying to you, this, this just shows how much God loves us. This shows how, how, you know, how he delights in us. And tell me, how do you respond to questions like that, Kyle? Uh, yeah. So do you one, remember this conversation? I, I, I do. I, I do. And I, and I, I had it last week okay. with a different group of people. Gotcha. Where Jane, were you about to say something? Oh, I have a funny story related to this. Oh, you do? Whenever you're ready. Mm-hmm. Well, do you want to go now or later? Well, so I teach on this and like, yeah. I, I have a whole, um, retreat thing that I do or like a conference theme that the title is in the beginning. And so, um, I mean, I bet five times, um, because that song begins with, um, what is it? You were the word in the beginning. Is that how, isn't that how, I mean, it starts with yep. in the beginning yep. and it's not until the second verse that it hits that next part. And so I teach on this idea and I talk about how the best news that we could come across is that God does not need us because if he needs us, then we're going to let him down. You know, like Absolutely. it is such good news that he doesn't need us. And I, I get back into the green room and the worship team is freaking out because they're like, we don't know what to do about this next, you know, set because this is a song we were planning on singing. And I'm always like, it's, you know what, it's okay. You know, you can sing it if you want to. It's not going to ruin the event, but it's like, um, it's so in the groundwater that people don't even, I said, and I I never know whether I should be glad or, or sad that most people don't even connect that I just taught on this. And then they sang something that said something different, but it's just kind of one of the funny inconsistencies um, that we run into. And they think they're saying the same thing. Well, yeah, they That's do. The irony. They, they do. And you know, I think one, we always want to say, listen, worship leaders and songwriters have an incredibly difficult job. It's a job. hard job. They got to so put, hard. they got to put theology and poetry. It's hard enough to do it in 40 minutes. And, and I don't want to sabotage the worship team. Like that is no. awful. You no. know, like I actually have started letting giving them a heads up in advance and I'm going to talk about it because I don't want to put anyone in that position ever. It, it's, it's an incredibly difficult role and it, it, that's why it probably should be treated with even greater respect and sobriety than it often mm. is. That's good. Um, I, but I will say that when we're talking about, uh, there's a lot of times we talk about this where it, it feels like God's love is desperate. 
Yeah. But the yeah. Bible uses desperation language, not for God to us, but for us to God. You know, as the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. We're the desperate ones who are seeking, longing, and in desperate need of the love of God. He is not a desperate lover. And that's really good news uh, because we absolutely need delighting love. I mean, just think about it like this. Like the love that you have for somebody that you treasure, it, it, it's, it's, it's not just grace. It's not just mercy. It's beholding delighting love that emerges from uh, a place of health. That's a healthy love. And God's love is perfect. And it emerges from his perfect love that the father shares with the son and the spirit. And like Jen said, if we're the recipients of God's desperate, needy love, this is a bad equation for us mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't end well. It does not end well. But if his love is fueled by his own covenant love for himself, covenant faithfulness to his promises and delight, well, then that's really good news because then it's locked in not to our uh, our faithfulness, but into, in, into his faithfulness to himself and to those that he has created. And I think that's a much, that's a much more, I mean, if you just want to use empowerment language, which yeah. But but if you want to use language that I think is meaningful to talk about what it means to be loved by God, I think it is far more meaningful and far more accurate to say uh, God loves us out of the overflow of the, of the love that he has for himself. He doesn't need us. Well, and I think, you know, we feel, um, we feel like... All human love is based on need to some extent. Even even the purest forms of human love, because because we're just needy, and um, I think that we're embarrassed by our need. And I think that's actually what we're going to see play out in in Genesis chapter three to some degree. Is like we feel like neediness is a sign that something is wrong. Yep. Now, certainly there are unhealthy forms of needing, but. Um, but the whole point of us being limited and God being unlimited is that we're needy by design. Like he creates us to need because we are created to need him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and we project that onto him. And just as we have a hard time conceiving of the eternality of God or of a time when there was no time, we have a hard time conceiving of a love that does not involve need because yeah. all hu- our whole human experience uh, of love. So like, you know, my relationship with my children, I want to say that's the closest I can get to the way that God's love is for me because God loves me because he created me. So I look at my children, I love them because they, you know, they're mine. I didn't create them, but you get the point. But I still need them. I, yeah. I need them to reciprocate that love. Not when they're an infant, but certainly by the time they're three or four, I'm wanting them to be expressing love to me. I need it. And so it's just really hard for us to conceive of a love that is completely devoid of need and then then to view that as a good thing. Right, yeah, you're absolutely right. But, but it's a, again, going back to creator-creature distinction, this is a fundamental difference yeah. between God as creator mm-hmm. and us as creatures. Our experience of giving and receiving Love and so when we t- we've talked a lot right there, JT, about trinitarian relations between yeah. the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So sometimes we'll talk about and when we're doing pre-creation or before the beginning kind of theology, we're really starting to deal with what we might call ad intra 
Trinitarian relations, yep. which would be kind of the, I don't know that it's best to say it this way, but the interior life of the Godhead um, or the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Sometimes you've heard us use the phrase is uh, imminent Trinity or ontological Trinity, but we're talking about the relations between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so what are those relational designations that are really important for us to hold? Yeah, so again, and we're really, I think, trying to connect two things here. So now that we're moving back into Trinitarian relations, we're doing that because God has never been lonely because he's always been Trinity. It wasn't the Father by himself. It was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So to connect this relational theism that we need to avoid like the plague, and now moving back to Trinitarianism, we can look at, and the only way to know, to use your category, or not your categories, but the categories you brought up of ad intra, we have to look at ad extra. Who have we seen God to be in redemptive history? So we're making an assumption, a logical assumption, that who God reveals himself to be over the course of redemptive history, which is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we've already given the definition, we would assume that that's also been eternally true. So, for example, the Father is never sent in redemptive history. He is eternally unsent. The language that, we've, that, we, that the church has historically used is, unbegotten or ungenicized, you know, that's not, not a good word, but you know what I mean? Like he never, he never has a Genesis and neither do the son and the spirit, but he's, he's never sent. He just is unbegotten. And he is the one who eternally begets the son. So, and again, beget is kind of where we're getting this Genesis language to come into being. The son does not come into being. He is eternally begotten. So he is the one who is eternally generated by the father. John talks about this in, or uh, uh, Jesus talks about this in the gospel of John in John chapter five, chapters 15 and 16, that he is the one who has eternally been coming from the father, though the father also granted him to have life in himself. So Augustine, the theologian, looks at John 5, 26 and says, the father grants the son life, but it's life in himself, not just in the father. So we have the son who, who comes from the father in history, in redemptive history, which means he has eternally been coming from the father forever in an eternal relationship. And then this Holy Spirit, we learn in John 15 and 16, has been eternally proceeding from both the Father and the Son. So we see in redemptive history, after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, the Spirit is sent and breathed out upon the church to empower us and to give us new life through regeneration. He has also been eternally proceeding from the Father and Son forever in a way that, that never began. And so that is how we distinguish Father, Son, and Spirit, is the Father is eternally unbegotten, never sent in redemptive history, therefore never sent in in ad intra uh, relations. And then the Son is sent. He takes upon a human form and is sent to purchase and buy God's people back and redeem and forgive them from their sins. So he must be eternally begotten. And same with the Holy Spirit, proceeds from the Father and Son, therefore eternally proceeds in the eternal life of God. That was a lot. That was no, like a, no, it, it is, but it's it's, re- it's really important. He was, he was reading a tattoo that he has on his left arm, by the way. In case you're wondering why that was so it's flawless. My right arm, Jen. No, sorry. <laughs> Your mighty um, right arm. Mighty right arm. Mighty outstretched arm. Um, uh, the uh, so when we're talking about these relations, just to kind of let me ask you a few questions, JT, yeah. just so we can maybe help the help help a listener that's this is new to them, um, because this is pretty. We're now, we're now in some deep water. Just, yep. I want to be clear. If it feels like it's deep water, it is deep water. 
Uh, and so if you have that feeling, you feel like, wow, this is a little overwhelming, that's perfectly natural. Trinitarian theology just feels that way. Kyle, uh, send us a herd of sea turtles to swim us on out of here. You know what? I'm, go- I'm going to. Here we go. So uh, the, the Father is eternally unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten. The Spirit is eternally proceeding. Yep. These relationships, uh, the God the Father to the, to the Son the Spirit, the Son to the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit to the Father and the Son, in no way are diminishing the uh, godness the, the godness of yeah. the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Each of them is as fully God as another, correct? Correct. And the only thing that distinct, so like you could take any act that God does and how each person acts in that act is determined by their relation to the other persons of the Godhead. So yeah. since we're in Genesis, let's take creation. If God the Father is unbegotten, he is the one who initiates creation. The Son does not initiate creation. The Spirit does not initiate creation. If the Son is eternally begotten, he is the one through whom, for whom, and by whom the Father creates. This is what we see in Colossians chapter 1 in the Christ hymn. And then the Spirit, if he is the one who eternally proceeds from the Father and Son, and as we see in Genesis 1-2, he is the one who is completing this act of creation. So it's not that the Father creates, the Son redeems, and the Spirit sanctifies. All three of them are involved as distinct persons in every single act. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is, I know this can feel um, really, really... This could feel abstract, but totally. it is crucial. It's it is, essential. It's crucial because it's who God is. And this is an analogy I'm stealing from JT at this point, but the God whom we're called to love has revealed himself. And we mm-hmm. want to try as best we can to describe him accurately. JT has used this illustration before, but if I began to describe my wife to an audience of people who had never met her and begin to describe her falsely, that would not be indicative of the love that I have for her right? I want to describe accurately who I love dearly. And if we are those who are going to love and worship God, we will need to know him as he has revealed himself to be. So like an example of where, where I've seen this go pretty wrong at at like chapel services and seminaries. Like, so this is, this is it, not just in like your small little Bible study asking, hey, what does this text mean to you? But an example where this goes wrong is somebody maybe praying or preaching a sermon or reading a text that's a, and they say something along the lines of, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. I can't tell if I had a dime for every time I heard that. And I know what they mean, and I understand what they're trying to say, but the early church considered that to be so grotesque, they called it a heresy called patri passionism, the father's passion. If the father is unbegotten, he can't endure the passion in the way that the son who is eternally begotten does endure the passion. So the father does not die on the cross. The spirit does not die on the cross. The son dies on the cross. The son does not initiate creation. The father does. And so I know that this can feel a bit heady, but there's, they're actually pretty simple categories that when applied to everything in the life of God, I mean, it's, as soon as you learn the categories, it gets real simple, if that makes sense. Well, I think that's <laughs> nice to think that. Yeah, that's a pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty rosy, uh, pretty rosy perspective on it. But um, I think this is, is crucial. And we've been talking a lot about who God is, but I, I want to end with talking about, was there a work of God prior to creation? 
because can I actually I, can I actually give one more category that might help uh, people? Oh. Like if they're if they're like if they're like <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Give me one more chance. Go for it. Go for chance. it. I want to give one word to describe each person's work, both in eternity, God in Himself, but then also in redemptive history. Just one word. Go for it. The Father think initiates. The Son mediates. The Spirit completes everything. Whenever you're talking about God, initiate, mediate, complete. Jen's like swaying. Those are not, that's not the words I would have said. There, there's probably other words that would use too. I, okay, again, well, I'm, I'm not going to say my words because I, I, I hope everyone has just written down those three and is going to cling to them. <laughs> initiate, <laughs> mediate, complete. Yeah, initiate, or, mediate, or complete. Yeah, something like I that. think the way I've heard it is initiate, accomplish, yep, apply. Yep, those those would be great terms also. Okay, because I'm always worried that my terms must be the wrong ones if you give different ones because I really, I'm still, how long have we been friends? Five and a half years, six? Yeah. Yeah. And I still feel like, why can't I get this? No, I think those are really good words, Jen. Maybe even better. So let's let's just say, again, I'm just trying to give categories. Initiate, accomplish, apply. Initiate, mediate, fulfill, or complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're saying that that is the order in which the Trinity operates. Mm-hmm. But, the, but, but, but the, no, no one of those actions is done independently. That's right. And one of those actions is subordinate to another. Right. So, so if we're talking about, if we're going back to Genesis and why this all matters from the text that we're talking about, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, the Father initiates creation. Mm-hmm. Why does he do it? It's not because he's lonely, not because he needs something, but because he is an eternal covenantal loving God. Mm-hmm. Accomplishes it through the eternal son who, he, who never came into being, who never, the Father was never by himself and lonely, but this son whom he's eternally been in relationship with. He accomplishes creation through the sun and he completes it or applies creation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, That's good. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is actually a perfect segue to where I was going anyway, which is that when we think about the work of God prior to creation, you, you've given a great example of how those relationships play out in creation. But one of the primary works that happens before creation, according to Ephesians 1, is God's electing work of his people. And that, and that we get this same picture here, that God, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This would be the completing work of the Spirit. So the Father elects, the Son secures or accomplishes, and the Spirit completes or sanctifies, right? Mm-hmm. Is that another? For those who are new to this conversation or a little shaky on this conversation, where would you point them in the New Testament to see evidence of this? Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 11 is going to be probably the best. And it also too is really helpful because you get this Trinity, you get a real perspective on the Trinitarian dynamic of not just creation, but of salvation. I mean, this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. I mean, he starts off in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world Mm -hmm. that we should be holy and blameless before him. So right there, you get a really very concise snapshot of a work that happens among the Godhead or uh, from the Godhead uh, on behalf of God's people 
before creation. And Kyle, I think pastorally it'd be helpful for people who maybe are, so we've just swum in Trinitarian relations, we've swum in some other significant creational theology. Now we're talking about soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, how God loves and saves his people. Pastorally, why is this doctrine of election before creation? How would you apply that pastorally to somebody who's maybe been told, well, no, I have, a, I have the opportunity to, to, to be in a relationship with God based on my own will and my own accord? Yeah, and that's gosh. I mean, that's we, we've done in an thirty episode, seconds or less. <laughs> we've done an episode on humble Calvinism before. We've treated this topic, but I will say, if you had an opportunity to talk about the Trinity, this is my opportunity to talk about that and union with Christ. Uh, so, if you got your dibs, I'm going to get mine now. And I think this passage is a great reminder for us that the the affection and love of God for His people, this delighting love that we're talking about, doesn't just spill over so to speak, uh, into uh, the creation of humanity in the world, but of his setting his affections upon them as his beloved people and him securing them, uh, the father securing those people in the son uh, and keeping them in the son and doing this work before the foundation of the world. I think that the value of this pastorally, if I could appeal to people who maybe are, a suspect of election language or predestination language or think it's heavy handed. What Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter one is this profound reality that God is going to seek and save his people. He is going to keep them. He is going to hold them uh, as his treasured possession and nothing is going to be able to remove them, not even their own faithlessness. And you talk about a theme that's going to echo throughout the Old Testament and be pronounced in Genesis 1 through 11 is the faithlessness of God's chosen people. Well, what good news is it and uh, and, and what election reminds reminds us of is that God's salvation of his people is not contingent on our faithfulness, but is contingent on his faithfulness to keep those whom he has saved. And that is very, very good news for fickle and faithless people. Genesis is full of them. The world is full of them. And that's the nature of our hearts. And this podcast is full of them. (laughs) But even to connect that to Trinity, Kyle, is like if union with Christ means we're in the Son. And if you're taking, thinking about a Trinitarian relations in eternity, that the Father and Son will never lose their relationship. Yep. If you're in the Son, then you've now joined this Trinitarian Absolutely. relationship that can never be broken. It will never be lost. Absolutely. And that is an election cycle we can all celebrate. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. That, and that is as close to talking about <laughs> politics this season as we will get. Amen. <laughs> Uh, well, listen, hey, uh, we are glad that you jumped into the conversation today. If you want to jump into the conversation online, you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, Knowing Faith Podcast. In our next episode, this will be really fun. We're going to be chatting with author and Bible teacher Nancy Guthrie on what it means that the earth was without form and void. So we'll move from Genesis 1-1, right, to Genesis 1-2, and it'll be fun and exciting. Grace and peace.